afternoon and welcome to the 111th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we start a series of COVID calls on various aspects of education at this time. And today of the upcoming school year from the perspective of high school and college students with Madeline Ladd, Afra Hallider, and Shivani Patel. And I want to give a special note of thanks to Shivani Patel, who's been really essential in producing these episodes. And she's going to co-host one with me next week as well. So really looking forward to that. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, August 24th, there are 23,513,905 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 22,789,780 reported on Friday. Of those, 5,723,181 are in the United States. That's up from 5 million. 607,993 cases reported Friday. There are now a total of 176,991 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 174,924 reported Friday, yet again, at a pace of over 1,000 deaths a day. It's a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now with an extraordinary editorial that was published on Friday. This was published in The Observer, which is a student-run daily print and online newspaper that serves Notre Dame University, St. Mary's, and Holy Cross in Indiana. And the headline is, Don't Make Us Write Obituaries. This was published August 24th, excuse me, August 21st. <clears throat> When we learned the institutions within the tri-campus community intended to have students return for the fall semester, we experienced a variety of emotions, excitement to reunite with our friends, relief to return to the classroom, following the difficulties of remote instruction and reluctance to acknowledge that the in-person semester we were promised could be taken away at a moment's notice. Two weeks into the semester, our worries are close to reality. The university administration has largely blamed the COVID-19 outbreak on students attending off-campus parties. While this isn't entirely misplaced, it has been used to deflect responsibility from the very administrations that insisted they were prepared for us to return to campus. Clearly, they were not. Flaws in testing, contact tracing, and isolation and quarantine accommodations have since proven inefficient. At Notre Dame, the almost two-week gap between the return to campus and the implementation of surveillance testing scheduled to begin Today, that was Friday, represents a gross oversight on the part of the administration and has put the health and safety of the tri-campus and South Bend communities in serious danger. Experts warned this was likely, but University President Father John Jenkins insisted it was worth the risk. 
Presidents Katie Conboy and Father David Tyson seemed to agree. Since our return, a dashboard has provided the Notre Dame community with updates regarding the coronavirus on campus, but it leaves much to be desired in comparison to other institutions' initiatives, such as that of the University of North Carolina. As the events on campus have drawn national scrutiny, information regarding hospitalizations and isolation space should be made public, as well as a breakdown in the demographics of students testing positive. The community's understanding of the seriousness of the situation depends on it. St. Mary's and Holy Cross have provided even less information than Notre Dame. While we would like to know more about cases and testing on campus, we also call upon both colleges to provide the same information we are asking the university to release. The lack of transparency from our administrations only compounds the worry and anxiety felt by students, faculty, and staff alike. If we've learned anything in the past months, it's to take nothing for granted. The expectation that everyday life will continue as it always has can no longer exist. As redundant as it sounds, the next two weeks will shape the trajectory for the rest of the semester and perhaps the ones to follow. The blame for this does not lie with just one party. We as students, faculty, staff, and administrators need to share responsibility for the outbreak on our hands. We longed to return to South Bend while in quarantine last semester. Now we're at risk of hurting the community we've come to know and love. We implore members of the tri-campus community to do everything within their power to approach this virus in an appropriate and serious manner. Otherwise, we fear the worst is yet to come. Don't make us write a tri-campus employee's obituary. Don't make us write an administrator's obituary. Don't make us write a custodian's obituary. Don't make us write a dining hall worker's obituary. Don't make us write a professor's obituary. Don't make us write a classmate's obituary. Don't make us write a friend's obituary. Don't make us write a roommate's obituary. Don't make us write yours. And that was the editorial, don't make us write obituaries from the Observer Editorial Board published Friday, August 21st, 2020. The Observer is a student-run daily print and online newspaper serving Notre Dame, St. Mary's, and Holy Cross Colleges in Indiana. Powerful, powerful stuff. I'd like to bring my guests up now and introduce them to you as we get started today. Very excited to have my guest today. Madeline Ladd is a rising high school senior at Villa Maria Academy in Malvern, Pennsylvania. She has been a competitive swimmer for most of her life and is supposed to be captain this year for the swim team. Madeline is also the editor for the school newspaper, vice president of the National Honor Society and a member of the Spanish Honor Society. She's currently in the process of applying to colleges. Afra Hallider is a senior at Drexel University studying public health with intersecting interests in international development, disaster management, and labor migration. She's currently a co-op intern at the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery and will be interning with the director of refugee programming and planning at the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society in Pennsylvania this fall. Shivani Patel, known to COVID call listeners already, um, but she is a second year student at Drexel University studying finance and economics. She's also production assistant here in COVID calls. She helps audit transcripts, connect with guests, and now helps produce episodes. She's also representative on Drexel's student government, working to voice the concerns of the student body to the administration. And Afra, 
Madeline and Shivani, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Some editorial there from Indiana, huh? Definitely. Really something. I'm sure we'll talk about that a, a little bit. Um, I'm so eager to have this conversation in part because I feel like throughout this summer, we've heard plenty from faculty. We always do a, a lot from administration, a lot from pundits, very little from students. And now we're finally, it's time to hear from the students about what they think is going on and, and what this fall is gonna be like. So let me start the way I usually do. I'm just gonna ask you where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Madeline, can I start with you, please? Sure, so I'm calling from Chester County, Pennsylvania. And um, I feel like we're we're on the decrease of cases, but you know there's still that presence there. Um, so really, just taking it day by day. And the situation there, people are wearing masks. Are they out and about? Restaurants are open. Restaurants are open. Um, Fifty percent capacity inside, and there's outdoor seating as well. And you just have to wear a mask when walking to your table or getting up to use the bathroom. But. Mm -hmm. And people are mostly following those kinds of... Yes, whenever I go into a store or a restaurant, everyone always has their mask on. Um, if they don't, someone tells them to. So everyone's really being conscientious of that, so. Okay, All right. well, that's good to hear. Um, Afra, let's hear from you. So I'm in Philadelphia right now, um, living in my off-campus apartment, and cases are going down steadily here. But if you were to walk outside, you wouldn't know there's a pandemic going on because a lot of people aren't wearing masks. So it's been fluctuating in cases, but we don't have indoor dining yet. <laughs> We're not ready. So the, the what's the situation on on campus? Have you been over to campus it's a, and walk through there, see what it's like? Yeah, I've walked through campus a few times and it is completely empty. I've never seen it like that before. And it, you forget that you're on a college campus. I mean, mm. you still see the halal trucks and those are the only people that you really see on campus. This time of year, I've been in higher education my whole life, I guess, basically. I mean, once I got to the age I was in college, I really basically never left. And there's something this time of year, there's a, a feeling I start to get, like I'm going back, I'm so excited. And to hear you describe the campus that way is really devastating. I haven't been, I haven't been back. Uh, to see that. So um, thank you for sharing that perspective. Shivani, same to you. Where are you calling from and what's it looking like there? So I'm calling in from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is really close to where Madeline is um, in Chester County. And the situation is very similar as well, where um, all the restaurants are open at half capacity. Um, there's outdoor dining where there can be. Um, they have temperature checks. When I go to the store, people are wearing masks. Um, the grocery store that I shop at, um, they have like hand sanitizing stations and they sanitize all their carts and stuff beforehand. But um, this, the, the thing is with here and in Bucks, cases are going down, but it's not steady. Like there are some days where you hear on the Bucks County webs on their website how it's, it's like fluctuating. So um, I guess people are, from my perspective, people are being like they're wearing their masks and stuff but uh, there could be more to be done for social distancing wise. Cause I do see a lot of times like people having like backyard barbecues and stuff with their neighbors. So that's one thing. So you're all kind of describing somewhat 
similar situation in, in all in sort of the same region in terms of the cases, but but even a little bit different, you know, from what Afra is describing as to Madeline and Shivani, which you're describing in terms of how much compliance you're seeing with with masking orders. I mean, so much of this now seems to come down to um, individual behavior, uh, kind of at that level. And um, we've kept up with Esther Chernak on on this program about availability of tests. And my sense from talking to her is that people in Philadelphia Metro do have access to tests if they if they want them. But one of the challenges, and maybe we'll talk about this, um, is all of a sudden if we start to have an influx of students coming from outside the region, I mean, at any given time, there's hundreds of thousands of college students in the greater Philadelphia metro region. And then with the schools starting up K through 12, all of a sudden there's gonna be this huge demand and it's not so clear that people can respond to that respond to that demand. So that's one of the real challenges as we think about getting back to school. Madeline, let me ask you um, more specifically um, if school administrators have told you what's happening for the fall. I'm assuming they have, and I'm assuming it's probably a moving target. But can you tell us a little bit what's happening at Villa Maria Academy for fall semester? Sure. So um, we received word a few weeks ago that we plan to go back in person. Um, my first day is actually this Wednesday. And my school is a smaller private school. We have more or less 450 students in the whole school. So that kind of gives us the ability to distance the desk and have a smaller class size. Um, but they really reiterated the six feet apart, the social distancing and the wearing a mask. Um, and they're also adjusting our schedule a little bit. Um, in the past, we were always a school that did block scheduling. So four classes a day for 80 minutes and you would have your classes every other day for the whole year. But this year we're transitioning to true block scheduling, I guess more what you guys do in college. Um, we're still going to have four classes a day for those 80 minutes, but some of them are just a semester long, so I would have them every day, and I think they're doing this just to minimize contact, and um, you know, God forbid if we did go online, they said it would be easier um, to manage that, um, but I really noticed how detailed and well put out um, the plan our administrators made is, and so I can tell that there was a lot of coordination and communicating um, each day, and I hope everything goes well. I know um, that if everyone follows the rules and tries to comply the best they can, that um, it will, and I'm just really grateful that I get to go back in person because a lot of my friends who are public school students or even other private school students aren't able to go back in person. You mind sharing with us what kind of conversations you may have had with your with your parents about this time going back to school? Um, going back to school, um, I think my parents were just as hopeful as me that I would get to go back and um, learn in person because I feel like with the Zooms, um, I I feel like I'm more of a like in person learner that I feel more engaged when um, the teacher's actually in front of me in the classroom. Um, so they were very happy as well when we heard the news we would be going back and um you know they just talked to me a lot about doing my part making sure i wear my mask and follow the rules um and so i hope that's the conversation everyone else's parents are having with them so that like no one person ruins it for the whole school and your school year presumably you went home in march and didn't go back is that yes is that so right? i think it was march march 13th i think that was around when everyone canceled yeah. But at first, we were only supposed to be um, away through the end of March because we were having our spring break anyway. So we figured we would just come back. Um, but then they kept delaying it. And then finally, I think it was in late April, they 
um, suspended it for the whole year and we just went online through Zoom. So, you know how they handle graduation? Yes. So, um, in May, on the actual graduation day, um, very end of May, they did a little like drive by um, thing at Villa where everybody um, you know, got in their car with their parents and all the teachers and faculty came in distance and made signs. And so it was nice that the seniors had to have, um, got to have something on the actual graduation day. But in June, when, um, we started going further in the phases, like we called it red, yellow, and green is what Pennsylvania does. So, um, once we were in like the yellow and green phase, they were able to have in-person graduation. Um, and we do it in a church. We did it at a local church and everyone, um, was only allowed two guests. So um, they usually, I think it's like six. So they definitely um, cut it down a little, but they were still able to have the in-person graduation. Okay. Thanks for, for giving us those, those details. And um, even what you're describing gives us a, a sense of the really different picture of larger school districts versus maybe smaller uh, private or parochial schools that are able to take a slightly different approach. Afra, let me, let me, um, ask you so you're entering senior year right yeah so tell me a little bit about um what i guess tell i i know but i'd like to hear from your perspective what you're hearing about what drexel's doing um and how you're thinking about coming into the fall term yeah so i think just last week drexel announced that we are going to be all virtual for the fall and that was following after unc brought all their students to campus and then promptly uh, said they had to leave the dorms after a lot of clusters of cases. Uh, so I think it's really smart for Drexel to have announced that this soon because our quarter doesn't start for another month. Um, and it gives people a lot more preparation, um, you know, for virtual learning and it's not an abrupt, you know, moving out of the dorms. And I've always been on uh, the side of, you know, virtual learning for the fall. Uh, just from a public health standpoint, um, you know, campus, uh, even with, you know, social distancing, there's still a risk for clusters to form. And a lot of students do live off campus, which would bring those clusters into the community. Um, so I was pretty surprised that Drexel announced this early, but I'm glad that they did. And it does, uh, it is kind of a bummer that my senior year will start online but I know it's for the best. And if we, you know, keep up these uh, social distancing measures, maybe we'll get to go back in the winter. So I'm hopeful. It's one of those things about, you know, Drexel, if people don't know, Drexel's on a quarter system. And that means we're always a little bit out of sync with other colleges, right? And uh, so everybody else is going back in early September and we're hanging back for another two weeks. But as you pointed out, that allowed administrators at Drexel a little bit of, um, extra time, maybe, uh, to make that decision. I know you studied public health and you said something very interesting just now and thinking about sort of the broader idea of how return of students might affect more than just the campus community. So take us in into your thinking a little bit as a public health student. I mean, it's, um, I would say rare, maybe this is the second time in a century um, that students could be studying public health and seeing a pandemic unfold at the same time. It must be um, quite a learning challenge for you. I won't say exciting because that's not the right <laughs> word, but there is something about being alive and studying what you do at this time. What has it been like for you? 
Uh, it's definitely been strange. I actually took an infectious disease class this winter. Um, and oddly enough, we learned about coronaviruses in general the day before we heard about like the first case in the US. And I was like, what a weird coincidence. <laughs> and then it kind of all spiraled out of control after that. Um, and I also took an ethics class, a public health ethics class in the winter where we talked about the ethics of quarantine. And that was also very strange because we started to hear about the, you know, mitigation measures after that. So it's kind of like seeing what you learn in class unfold before your eyes, which is nice as a learning experience because I remember in Public Health 101, we learned that seatbelts were a public health measure at first and that people weren't complying at first. And nowadays I think like, who wouldn't you know wanna wear their seatbelt? Also we have like laws against that. And now I see that people are treating masks similarly so it kind of puts the things that I've learned before into context and also, um, yeah, to learn about this stuff alongside it happening in the entire world is definitely informing what I thought of public health before, which is that it is very essential. <laughs> so it has deepened your conviction that you were in the right major? Yes. I am really lucky that I picked public health when I did because I think once I graduate next year that people will pay more attention to it. And I think that what we've seen in the US calls for a bit more funding of public health. Um, I think that field is going to grow. So Shivani, let me come to you. Um, like Afra, you got the announcement last week, Drexel's going all remote in the fall. What did you think about it? So initially, like like in the um, the editorial you read earlier, I felt like a mix of emotions. I, initially, I felt kind of disheartened because since March, going back to campus is one of like the many things I look forward to. Like it's what kind of kept me going a lot of the times, and I I felt like I was missing out on all these amazing things that everyone always talks about in college. And you know, I still do kind of feel like that. Like I'm missing out. Like I have the worst fear of missing out ever. Um, but after seeing in the news what's been happening to so many co colleges across the country, like at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and at Notre Dame, I feel a sense of relief that that we won't have COVID clusters affecting the Drexel community and our neighbors in the surrounding communities as well, like in Palton and Mantua, um, because of administration's decision to not bring back a whole bunch of students from across the country and the world to campus. So. It's, it was a mix of emotions that I felt. Mm -hmm. you know, Madeline described that she um, really prefers to learn in person. Uh, after you said maybe it's okay to, to learn distant, Is, has that been okay for you? I'm always curious at how you know people's perceptions of how they learn may be in flux right now at this time. And I can tell you from my side, people's perceptions of how they teach are in flux at this time. What, what what was your experience with remote learning, Afra? And is it something you could see sustaining a while longer? Um, yeah, so I actually was on co-op for spring and summer. So I haven't had to take an entirely online curriculum yet. I took one online class in the winter that basically is what every Zoom class is like now. And for me personally, um, it was a good addition to my in-person classes because there was a discussion component into it and it allowed me to be more flexible. Um, 
So I am pretty prepared, I think, to go back in the fall uh, with completely online classes, especially because a lot of my classes are discussion-based. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm, I personally am ready for it, but considering other learners, a lot of people are, you know, visual learners, um, in-person learners. And when you're thinking about K through 12 education, um, that part of education is really important for their development. So, you know, in-person learning doesn't just provide like connections to the content, it provides you with connections to your peers and students. You learn, you socialize so much. Um, so when I think about college students learning in person, I usually also think about, you know, elementary school students who this mm -hmm. is like completely impacting their educational trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've thought a lot about, you know, the different points at which people, you know, in their, in their careers as learners, um, it's not linear. There's various times, you need different things at different times. I, mm -hmm. I can only imagine um, kids learning to read or just coming into learning to read this last year, for example, or kids entering middle school, for example, um, and high school seniors as well. I mean, there's so many different sort of skills being developed at different at different times. Um, I can't speak for all educators, um, and you won't hurt my feelings if you answer truthfully what I'm about to ask, but Shivani, let me ask you first. Um, in the classroom, through the spring and as you look into the fall, what worked and what doesn't work or and you don't have to name any names but like take us in the classroom a little bit um i'm gonna start off with what did work um and i i so it's very diplomatic of you <laughs> yeah um what did work was so i only had one class that did this and i can tell you right now that's oh, the only class that i actually like remember like i've learned from like i can tell you stuff i learned in that class the other classes is kind of like it went in one ear out. I did it for the exam and then out the other. Um, so my one professor, it was for a research methods class that I took first. I had to take for star, um, and basically every single class was um, synchronous. And I know that some people like don't like the idea of that because it's like, oh, you can't do it at your own time. But I, mean, I didn't like that because I had to wake up like at eight o'clock in the morning. But I mean. It, it was just really helpful in the in, in the long run. It was helpful because um, my professor, he kept uh, bringing up polls for us, so it's like we were forced to engage. Um, and then in in the discussion, he would constantly be asking us questions, so people would be engaging in the um, chat boxes, or if they wanted, they would raise their hand and say it out loud. Um, and also, my professor in the beginning and the end, he would like ask everyone. It was a relatively smaller class; it was like thirty people. Um, and he would ask us like, oh, wait, how was your weekend? Anything fun, whatever. And it just like, it just felt like the connections. It was so nice at the time to be able to talk to people instead of just be staring at a screen. And it's like rather it being like a video. Um, now what didn't work for me was my one class, it was for, it was called management information systems. And, um, I was as a freshman, like it was one of the classes that I had to take as an introductory class in my business major. Um, and I can tell you right now, I don't learn, I, I don't remember anything I learned from that class just because um, it was like 200 people lecture um, one time a week, like four hours at a time. I was sitting at the screen um, and my professor just kind of like read through the PowerPoint, didn't ask any questions. So 
what what, I, what I'm trying to say is the whole being getting getting people engaged was like huge mm -hmm. in um, me actually being being able to get some learn something from my classes because um, my MIS class, my accounting class, it was just kind of like a video and there's no engagement going on. And I just at the end of my term, I just kind of felt like, dang, I'm really I really didn't get anything out of these last ten weeks. Um, also, partly it's because of the attitude. Say it again. It's also partly like I guess um, it's also partly the attitude you have to keep when you're when you're a student. Like you have to keep reminding yourself, like, hey, Shimani, like that you're here to learn, and like you can't just be shrugging right. things up. You just have it's harder to get motivation, I guess. I just wanted to I want to ask uh, Madeline the same same thing. Are you going to go back in the classroom here starting uh, this coming week? So. Um, was there anything that happened in the remote learning that that worked for for you, or you're like, I'm glad we're going to be back in class and and leave the remote aside? Uh, I feel like my school did a really good job of keeping um, consistency with their um, Zooms. We use Zoom as our platform for learning, um, and also kept up the engagement. I know the majority of my classes we had Zoom every day, the same time every day, and um, each teacher had a lesson plan planned out and we still continued with tests and quizzes, which at the time we were like, oh, another test. But it was it really was nice looking back that we still had the flow like we would have um, in an in in-person class. And I really enjoyed when the teachers would, like Shivani said, ask questions, try to keep everyone engaged. I know a lot of my teachers utilize the breakout rooms on Zoom, which was nice because it gave you a little smaller um group to work with it would almost be like working in groups um as we do often in person um so i definitely think that the transition was different but i still feel like i got a very quality education and finished out my junior year as i would if i were in person afra let me ask you the same thing when you said you were on co-op maybe not everybody knows what that is can you tell us what what that is and what that experience was like yeah, so Drexel has uh, their very unique co-op system where you get to have six months of full-time employment in between your academic terms. And this was my one and only co-op because I'm a four-year major. And I, I was supposed to go to Singapore originally and work with the Ministry of Health, but COVID put a wrench in those plans. So I was lucky enough to find another co-op at an anti-trafficking organization. And it, the entire experience was remote. And I think that experience of working was really interesting because, um, I mean, everyone at the company was adjusting to working from home. And it seems like that might be the future. Teleworking might be the future. So I got an introduction to, you know, managing your time and um, how companies actually operate remotely. Um, I would have preferred an in-person experience, but um, I'm lucky that I had a co-op at all. A lot of students were not as fortunate and um, a lot of companies were having hiring freezes and wouldn't allow any interns to onboard. So I think I got a really unique co-op experience. Um, uh, thank you for that explanation of co-op and, and I'm glad you were one of the ones who got to keep it. Something you said there, I think is really uh, insightful and, and I wanna build on which is this, it demanded new skills development of you. Um, and it's not that we expect any student when you do a co-op or a fellowship or an internship to blow it off. That's not at all what it is. But usually there's quite a lot of guardrails 
when you leave the campus and you go into a work setting, there's a lot, but you didn't necessarily have that, I guess. I mean, you had to really have the discipline to conduct all of it online. And they had never had an online co-op student, I'm presuming. Yeah, I think I, I was their first co-op student ever. So I think right. I was, yeah, so, and I think they, they did have a lot of interns um, from around the world um, that were just for the summer. So we were all kind of uh, interning from all different kinds parts of the world and having to, you know, I had a fellow intern who worked in Belarus. So we had to work around schedules. Um, so I think that's also another skill that I learned is like, you know, having to manage your time, especially when you're working with people from all across the world. And I want to work in international development, so I think that will be a very important skill for me. Uh -huh. Okay. Let's um, remind everybody we're listening to COVID calls and we're talking today about the student perspective of the return to campus with Shivani Patel, Afra Halliter, and Madeline Ladd. And I've got a question here from loyal viewer Jorge Benavides Ross. And thank you, Jorge. Good to hear from you. And I like this question. Um, maybe I'll see if one of you want to take this one. In your experience, how pronounced is the technology gap between students and teachers? in terms of your virtual learning. Did anybody have a experience in the in the spring that really showed that that gap? And I think once again, you're not gonna hurt, certainly not gonna hurt my feelings. Um, and I, I'll say I feel very sophisticated just because I can like be here with you and have this microphone running. So I mean, uh, expectations for some people of my generation might be lower than they should. And we're all been learning together. But what do you think of this question? Um, I feel like I noticed that there was a gap between some of the students and teachers. I feel like our generation just is always exposed to technology 24-7, so we're more, I feel like, adaptable to it. Um, there were a few occasions where some of my teachers were talking and they were muted and we were like, Mrs. So-and-so, you're muted, we can't hear you. But um, definitely as time went on, everyone caught on, some earlier than others. And I know that my school held a lot of training for the teachers um for zoom and other platforms um so i think we all just kind of work together help each other out um to fix things so the muted uh the muted lecturer of course is always a problem and maybe doesn't happen just to just to college professors but you know there there are real issues if instructors had never taught online before and their entire pedagogy had been based in a classroom or a laboratory setting to make those modifications quickly. And I have colleagues uh, across many different disciplines who, who face that throughout the spring and the summer. And it's a whole, it's a, it's a, it's a new pedagogy if you're really working at it. I've been teaching online since 2004. So it's something I had already been doing for a long time, but um, I'm, I'm strange in that regard. Most people in humanity have not been teaching online that long. Let me um, come to another question here. I want to talk a little bit about the future 
and um, get some context from each of you. And Madeline, I want to start with you. So you're a competitive swimmer um, entering senior year. Uh, presumably that means you, you're thinking about college. Maybe you're even thinking about competing in swimming in college, or you're certainly thinking about a strong senior year and you haven't been able to practice with your team for a while, I presume. How is this going to, how are athletics going to come into the picture for you as we go into the, the second part of this COVID, um, you know, COVID calendar this year? Um, I definitely think it's a huge topic of uncertainty, not only for me, not only for swimmers, but for any athlete right now. I know um, that PIAA, the, um, the management for sports, they just released a statement saying that um, they would continue with fall sports, but it would just be subject subjective to the local school districts. And I know that each school district is um, having meetings and making decisions. Some are um, planning to move forward as normal. Some are planning to postpone the season or even cancel it completely. So I think it's just something that everyone has to adapt to and take day by day. Um, personally, my high school swim season isn't until December. So we're considered the winter sports season. So I guess we kind of just will see how it plays out um, with the virus as a whole and how sports go in the fall. Um, but hopefully, um, I just hope that we as a team can find safe ways to get the team together, regardless of whether that looks like formal practices and meets or whatever that is. Um, so really I can't speak much on it now. I just have been trying to swim on my own, train on my own. I know a lot of other athletes around me have been doing the same. Um, and I'm glad I've had the chance to swim for as long as I have. I'm reaching my decade of club swimming this year. And I've been a high school swimmer for three years and almost three full seasons. So I'm just glad I got to experience that. So you're also thinking about colleges and those applications will be due pretty soon. Uh, presumably, most universities and colleges are not doing in-person campus tours. Um, mm -hmm. So what is your college selection process going to be? It's going to be like a remote college visit or how are you thinking about doing that? Um, so luckily I got to visit the majority of my campuses, um, that I'm looking at in spring of 2019. So I actually was able to go to those in-person tours, see campus in person, but I have, um, attended some virtual sessions, some virtual tours and information sessions online, um, mm -hmm. this spring and summer. And I've really noticed that colleges have amped up their frequency of these tours and these sessions, and they've really amped up their email communication as well, because I've been receiving emails from um, mailing lists I've signed up for, but also people I haven't um, about coronavirus and about their admissions in general. Um, so I think everyone's just trying to advertise as much as they can, because I think it really makes a big impact when students can't visit on campus. Um, so. It seems hard though for a college or university to differentiate itself you know, I mean, the campus tour is a visceral thing. Like, yeah. you see the students, you know, you see the facilities. You you actually, you know, get that sense of interaction on the on the campus. Maybe I'm old fashioned. I think this matters more than it than it should. But you meet future professors, you meet administrators, and it strikes me that the the vi virtual campus tour aren't they all the same? Yeah, I definitely some have been better than others. Um, <laughs> Another I, diplomatic statement. You guys are but, all very diplomatic today. But, Go ahead. Um, I'm sorry. We cut you off. No, no, it's okay. Um, and I feel like, personally, I've been trying to go to the general tour, but also um, go to the 
specific major. They often have a specific major session. So like I would go to the business school for each of the schools. So it kind of gives a more personalized um, session. But I mean, it's not like you can just ask your tour guide right in front of you a question about or see a building in person. So that's definitely there's that disconnect. And I've noticed that from in comparison to my tours that I have had in person in the tours that I have had um, online, because I mean, I'm just like sitting on my couch and watching rather than walking the actual campus hours away. So I think they've tried to work with what they have the best. So I definitely appreciate it as a high school student, but it is frustrating not be being able to, you know, go there in person and see it. Seems like they should just give uh, students a GoPro or something and let them just do a day in the in the life of their of their experience. Of course, most of them are not on campus now either. So I guess it yeah. would be you with your GoPro in your apartment making a virtual Canada. Couldn't work right now, I guess. Is that's that's yeah. the whole point. After a same I, question you're preparing you're thinking about post-college experiences i'm sure and, and planning for that you're running against the same same issues it's, it's hard to imagine yourself in a future place that you can't go right yeah um i'm mainly looking at graduate schools in the uk so i don't think i would be able to visit them regardless but i think um you know depending on how this year turns out it could be that those schools might not bring their international students to campus just because, um, you know, traveling is all up in the air right now. But I think that I'll have to get used to more of a remote like way of learning, um, especially for graduate school. And yeah, that application process, I feel like will mirror Madeline's. You're in student government, right? You and Shivani both? Yep. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how do campus clubs, student-run activities, student government, how are you going to approach this fall and this year? And I ask that, particularly in the context of that editorial that I read. Um, I think that students um, in the past maybe sometimes underestimated the amount of uh, real power that they have on campus, and I, I feel like that may be changing right now. Um, and that editorial was, was strong. And so let's hear a little bit about your perspective, what it's going to be like to have remote student government and maybe even talk a little bit about the objectives of student government this fall. I'd like to hear from both of you on that, whoever would like to go first. I can go. Yeah. Is that okay with the Afra? Yeah. Um, so we've been having, so every Monday, um, we have to have joint assemblies and um, which is basically when the entire board comes and meets and uh, we go through everything that happened in the past week. Um, we have discussions, we do, we do, we debate, um, we vote on important stuff. Um, and having, I got the experience to have that in person throughout the fall and the winter. And then we switched completely to online format um, with Zoom calls with admin and um, joint assemblies, like in, not in person. And it was just, in the beginning, like the transition was really crazy because um, we had to even shift all of our elections online as well. So we were trying in the spring, we were literally trying to reach out to the entire undergraduate student body um, to have them also participate in the election process. Um, and we had to like use social media to like, market all that out there. So it was just like a really crazy process. Um, but yeah, so you said the the power that we have 
um, as student government. So one of the things that we've been working on is, so basically I'm a second year student at Drexel and second year students are required to be a part of Drexel's two-year housing bind. So before they announced this decision of uh, going fully remote, even if all of our classes were remote, the Drexel affiliated apartment housing called ACC, uh, they were gonna make everyone come back to their apartments. And people were going like crazy all over Facebook, Instagram, everywhere, like international students and domestic students were trying to sublet and relet their leases. Parents were passing around petitions, the comment sections were just filled with lots of like angry comments. People were sending emails left and right. And then when Drexel announced that they were going fully remote last week, there was a period of a day or two where people were even angrier. Um, and we would, we would get all these emails through USGA because um, I'm part of the Buildings and Properties Committee. So that's one of the things I work with, which is like business services and working with like ACC, which is the housing, um, Drexel affiliated housing. Um, and then ACC, again, a day later after Drexel announced they were going remote, they sent out an email saying that they're gonna be offering rent abatements to second year students. And the only reason they were gonna do that is because second year students are bound to the two year housing contracts, but they still did the upperclassmen who live in Drexel affiliated apartments and especially upperclassmen who are international students. Yeah, they did them really dirty with um, not offering them rent abatements. So that's the one issue we're working to address. This is like a little look inside some of the issues we work on. Um, and I bring this up not because this is just like a Drexel issue, it's happening all over the country. I mean, I just read an article about this morning where students are scrambling to relet or sublet their leases because their universities had originally planned for a hybrid approach and then they decided to switch to fully remote. And mm. I mean, like some of these people signed their leases in January. I signed my lease in January. Um, this is like before COVID even happened. So it just stinks right now that like these landlords and apartment proprietors and college towns across the country are trying to like profit from vulnerable students. And that's just one of the issues that uh, student government is fighting against right now, um, trying to stand up for those upperclassmen and international students who still have to pay rent even when they're not gonna be back on campus. Afra, is, is student government uh, at Drexel or any other colleges that you're aware of? I mean. Is this? These don't seem like the usual kind of issues that student government leaders will be tackling, or maybe you tackle them with, but not with this kind of urgency. It must be surprising to you to all of a sudden be in these kinds of discussions, huh? Yeah, I actually joined student government in May, so it was amidst all the COVID nineteen things. So that's basically the only perspective I have um, of student government. So every initiative that we have is kind of you know, centered around that, or there's some aspect of it that involves COVID-19. So I think we can agree that students nowadays need, um, you know, a voice to the administration because there are a lot of aspects of their collegiate life and academic life that are being impacted by coronavirus. Um, I'm on the building and properties committee with Shivani. So we've been working a lot on that um, housing initiative. And I'm also on the academic affairs committee and Drexel implemented a pass-fail system in the spring, and I think they continued it for the summer. So now um, it's in the talks of whether it should be implemented for the fall. And you know, the pass-fail option is given, you know, in consideration of students who may not have the best, you know, at-home learning environments. And you know, campus is like a home for a lot of students, where it's their housing, it's where they get their food. And you know, when they're you know forced to you know, evacuate their campus, you know, they might go back to home situations that are not conducive to learning like colleges. So I think one of those examples is, you know, uh, working on the pass fail option or making sure that students aren't bound to their leases 
when they're not supposed to be on campus anyways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's been my experience with student government so far. I think it offers a window also. I mean, this pandemic is not just, it's about a virus and it's about people suffering and dying. But this virus and this pandemic and this disaster more generally is also about inequality in America. We've talked about that a lot on COVID calls and it's about um, economic precarity. And it's about history and legacies of racial violence. All of these things have converged right now. I mean, what you're talking about just now um, in this discussion about just sort of advocating for people's rights, you know, with the money they spend, precious resources uh, for higher education. That's, that's part, it's a sliver of this. Um, you wouldn't think that somehow it's connected with a global pandemic, and yet this is an important aspect on that. I just, Shivani, I wanted to start with you on this. Um, you're all, we're all living through um, challenging and remarkable times. And um, you're in the midst of getting educations to then go out and change the world. I know sometimes people say that sounds a little bit cliche or hokey. I don't, I don't find that cliche in these times at all. We are, we, the world around us is changing. I'm wondering what you're learning right now as a, as a student in these times. What things are you seeing that, that challenge you, that you want to work on? Maybe things, questions you already were asking, but now they look different to you, they're sharper. Tell us a little bit about how living through these times is changing what you think. Um, I'm really I'm really glad you asked this question because this has been something that's been affecting me a lot in the past couple months. And I say this because um, in, ever since uh, quarantine hit and we had all remote classes and I started working remotely as well, um, I've been more, I've been seeing more of the news. And even with working as a production assistant on COVID calls, I'm seeing even more of the news than I did before because I'm already scrolling through Twitter and Instagram and seeing all these like news subscriptions and seeing all of this horrible stuff happening around the world. Um, and, you know, there's been so many points where I felt so overwhelmed by how much stuff just goes on, um, whether it be like reading about the crisis in Yemen or, um, you know, COVID in general. Um, the racial injustices going on, um, and just just everything going on in the news, just making me feel so overwhelmed and at some points even hopeless, kind of like powerless. But the one way I've been uh, dealing with that is so when I see when I read something online um, that I, like if I, I read about the recently um, the California wildfires, um, the Yemen, the crisis in Yemen, um, I have this. I started an Instagram account and a blog to talk about um, little ways that people can uh, be the change kind of from, you know, we're not like big politicians or anything. I don't have a whole bunch of power, but my whole mentality is just do something, um, do whatever you can to be the change. Cause I feel like it's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to do nothing because you think that you can only do so little. So basically like the whole do what you can. So recently I've been making like, uh, slide decks and stuff with like and a whole about what is this issue about and then links to different petitions and organizations and informative articles and stuff and then i post them on my blog and on um, my social media accounts and then people share them um use them and i consistently update them um I, right now just one of the ways to bring more hope for me personally is 
just because I feel like it feels so, I feel so powerless sometimes. One of the ways I'm bringing hope for myself is I'm just doing what I can to be the change, I guess. Um, yeah, that's my bit right there. Can you put that link to that in the um, chat and I'll put it up on screen so people can, yes. can read those if any of those are, are public. And I really appreciate that. Um, you know, that perspective you brought. Madeline, I want to ask you the same same question. The world must look different to you now than it did in March. How's that affecting the way you think about what you want to learn, what you want this country or world to look like? Definitely. I agree with Shivani um, over quarantine and throughout the whole pandemic. I've definitely been tuning into the news more, whether that be on live TV or reading, um, reading stories on my phone. And I feel like I've just become much more globally aware than I was before coronavirus started. And for that, I'm grateful. And I, I, I guess it took a global pandemic for that to happen. But um, so that is one upside to it. I feel like I'm more globally aware. But in the same way, I also realized um, how much of a task like our generation and even generations younger than us are faced with. Um, I mean, we are the ones who, like Shivani said, will be this change. And I agree with her statement when she said, you can make change in smaller ways than you think. And just because you may not have um, a big voice or a big presence doesn't mean that you cannot do something great. So I've just been thinking about ways I see injustice, I see inequality in my community, what I can do to fix it. And I, I think just the biggest thing for me is that I don't wanna be a part of that. I don't wanna be somebody who is oppressing someone else. And so I'm just really conscious of that and, um, I think I'm just much more aware. Taking those kind of actions, even sort of being aware of them in your community are really important. And, and I guess I'd like to sort of tie that in with some things that I've, I've seen students uh, at the front of, including literally uh, protest um, against George Floyd's murder that literally walked down my street in front of my house and it was led by students. Um, which was a remarkable moment. And I went outside and followed them um, and participated in that way. Madeline, I just sort of bring that back to you. You mentioned things happening in your community. What sort of things have you seen or what kinds of things do you see yourself getting active in now? You may have already been active. I don't mean to say you weren't, but that it looks different, it feels different now than it did before. Sure, so I feel like it's really inspiring seeing um, kids your own age, kids around your age, um, really making these big statements and having the courage to do these types of things. I know that there were many local protests um, at local parks um, by me. And I've really noticed that a lot of um, people my age have been really active on social media and have really made a presence um, of spreading awareness. And whether that's just a short article they shared, um, it can really make a difference because someone could see that and build off of that and then it keeps on going and going. So I think it's definitely really inspiring seeing all this happen and it makes me want to get involved too. After the same question to you, you told us that you um, just happened to be learning about coronaviruses and then all of a sudden the your major now becomes like, you know, public health becomes the front page of every newspaper in the world for half the year. Um, but I'd like to know how, how things do look different to you now now and, and what this means as you're thinking about your future plans a little bit. Yeah, um, so alongside learning things like about things like pandemics and seatbelts, we also learned a lot about racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. 
Um, I took a lot of classes that specifically speak to the urban aspect of that. So, you know, the built environment and health and the pandemic brought all those to light and like put them in an interconnected way. You know, you saw the eviction crisis, you saw the uh, blatant racial disparities and who is getting and dying of COVID-19. Um, it really, I learned about all these different topics and, you know, different classes, but it all started to come together once this pandemic started. And uh, I think, you know, to speak to Madeline's point about social media, being a young person and growing up with social media, I've never seen such a collective effort. I think that real structural change is going to happen because of our generation. Um, we have a very loud voice. We have a lot of voting power. Um, and I feel really lucky that I get to be, you know, a part of that. And also I feel lucky to have studied public health with such a social justice background because a lot of the issues we see within public health are the direct result of racism, redlining, um, you know, all these historical phenomenons that have, you know, led us to this very moment. I have to say that since we're all, um, you know, Delaware Valley, we all work and live in that in that area generally. Um, it is quite something, um, you know, when you really look at the history of Philadelphia, for example, these issues are right in front of us every single day. Mm -hmm. And that the pandemic snaps them into greater focus after I'm really impressed with the way you, you frame that as an urban situation as well. Was that intentional when you chose Drexel that you wanted to study urban public health? Um, it's something that I was interested in, but it wasn't really solidified until mm -hmm. I got to Drexel. And our School of Public Health does have an aspect on improving the city of Philadelphia's health. So it's something that I came to be more interested in once I took classes in it. It's, um, you know, these issues, I mean, these days of the, uh, and I think with the GOP convention about to start, we're gonna see a lot of images of cities in flames and, and a lot of sort of positioning of cities as in hopeless sorts of places in the center of pandemic. I think at the same time, we have to, we have to take a real hard look at the fact that there is vast inequality in American cities and entrenched structural racism and health inequality, um, but that also those are historical productions of decisions that have been made. And if people say, not anymore, let's undo those structures and let's take action. I don't mean to say it can be done all in a year, but just the way you're all talking right now gives me some um, hope that you're seeing those challenges with clear eye. Shivani, I want to come back to you because I know one of the things you're interested in is environmental sustainability. There's been a lot of um, talk right now about what we can what we can learn about climate action. And, and I was very impressed with some people I've talked to, um, Franco Montalto, actually, who's a professor at Drexel, who told me that, you know, when the end of the last... Um, uh, COP meeting, you know, the, the sort of last meeting, IPCC meeting, everybody was so down because the United States and Australia and Brazil had all basically said that ah, we're not interested in climate mm -hmm. action anymore. And, and yet, you know, Greta has been such a galvanizing figure and a young person um, and really calling us all to sort of moral account about climate change. And then within a 
three months, we engage on this enormous collective action on this planet, and it hasn't been perfect, but you know, the fact that people around the world would go inside and shelter and for months take action to protect themselves and each other, I think that is instructive for what's possible with climate action. Again, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I'd like to get your sense of what you're taking away from COVID-19 that you could apply to your thinking about climate. Um, so one thing that I noticed um, on social media is I've been seeing a lot of tweets um, with like, I don't know, I don't know if it's people know, but um, the California, there's been like these crazy wildfires going on in California right now. Um, and I keep seeing all these tweets of people saying, um, oh, wow, look, just another addition to how sucking 2020 is like, dang it, like 2020, whatever. But here's the thing that that's not anything new and it's not going to be anything unique for the coming years. In fact, it's going to get even, even more like it's going to the like the extreme weather is going to become even more amplified in the coming years. And um, this is not anything new that people are going to be dealing with. Um, so just like seeing, just seeing how if the reason why I feel like these people um, stayed inside, like, for quarantine and stuff is because COVID-19 was so much more uh, like in front, of, it was like in front of you. It, it was a, directly impacting everybody. These wildfires aren't in fact imp impacting everybody. They're impacting the California residents, but they're not impacting everybody. So th that's what makes it so hard with uh, the climate catastrophe with the whole getting everyone to um, get involved is because it, it affects more um, people of, it affects a lot of more community, communities um, that are lower income um, and that are communities of minority communities. Um, it's not really affecting uh, everybody per se. Right. So that's what is kind of making the whole everybody taking collective action part so hard um, because it's not, something that's happened, it's not like directly impacting, you can see it in the news, like, yeah, look, there's these wildfires happening, there's floods happening here, but it just, I guess there's no motivation for everybody to be collectively. So I have, I, I still have, I say that, but I still have hope um, because I see that our gener, our, from social media, I'm seeing that my peers and um, people um, in this younger generation, they are really pushing um, for, mm for people to be accountable and take climate action. really powerful point that the pandemic is is literally in front of all of our faces and I, and I agree with you it of course it affects people un, unequally um, but it affects everyone urgently yes uh, climate is also the same but we don't perceive it that way um, and I think that's that is a really important sort of analogy to make and maybe gives people a stronger platform in which to in which to make these points just to remind people, we're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Madeline Ladd and Afra Hallider and Shivani Patel. We're almost up on time, and I want to make sure if there's anything that you wanted to to raise about um, 
you know, what you're going through at this time or the experience of students when you get to that. But I want to ask you kind of a uh, my final question and feel free to take it however you want to. But what are you most looking forward to in this school year? What are you what's I mean, it's going to be a weird year. There's no way around it. But what is the what would you like to look back at the end of the school year and say, yeah, I was, I'm glad I did that. That worked out. Afro, can I start with you? Yeah. Uh, I think at the end of this school year, I'll also be reflecting on my entire college experience. Um, but for this year specifically, I just want to see and you know have students be recognized for their resilience in all these situations that have been happening from the pandemic to you know shining a light on racial injustice. I hope that um, people will see how students can navigate these situations um, you know with with a community and also, I would like to see, I guess, um, more of these elements of racial and ethnic uh, disparities and injustice framed in more classes than, you know, just my public health classes. I think that, you know, a, uh, there's a spark and I think it's going to, you know, spread to the entire school, hopefully. And, you know, this wave will keep, will keep riding this wave. I, I would... Thank you for sharing that. And I think um, I will underline once again, as an educator, um, if you all say to us and to the administration, hey, these are the things we want to learn. Um, the curriculum moves slowly, I will admit, um, but it does move, it does change. And the way you phrase that I think is really, is really powerful and important to make that, to make that point. Right now, Madeline, um, same question to you. What are you looking forward to this year? Sure. So I'm, for me personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing how my college process unfolds. I know this is going to look a lot different because of COVID this year. So I just really hope that um, I'm given the same chance and not negatively, negatively affected by the virus um, with admissions and everything. But colleges have been doing a great job of trying to um, make any, everything as normal as possible and accommodate where they can. Um, but beyond college, I, like Alfred was kind of saying, I really just hope to see this spark continue. I, like Scott, you were saying earlier, a lot of the issues that we are seeing now have always been issues in society, but I think that the virus is just kind of bringing them more to a forefront. And so I'm thankful for that. And I hope that our generation and the generations that come after us will be able to kind of play off of the spark and keep this global awareness and keep educated and really have a sense of awareness and care for everyone around them, not just um, what's going on around them. So I think that's something that's really going to be affecting me um, as I move on to college. I Like I, like Afra was saying, I really hope that we have these difficult conversations more often and more frequently, whether that be with the mm -hmm peers in my life or the adults in my life or the educators in my life. I hope that people, um, when things do start to go back to normal, don't forget about these feelings that we're feeling now. I'm hearing a lot of generational solidarity in this call. Um, and I'm appreciating that. Uh, and I think that's another strength to build on. Shivani, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, I agree with everything that Madeline and Afra said about, uh, I look forward to seeing improvements in uh, worldly issues, I guess. But I'm also really looking forward to um, 
the personal growth that I'm going to be making um, over the coming that I have made and that I, I will be making um, because I feel like coronavirus really gave me an opportunity to stop with this whole like fast paced life um, reflect and let me it allowed me to give me time to uh, reevaluate how I wanted to live my life because uh, like I said I'm look, really looking forward to the personal growth I made I've changed up a lot of my habits my personal habits um, over the over the past couple of months and I'm working every day to do what I can to be the change in the world I guess do what I can to be better so that's what I'm looking forward to I have a feeling this is going to be one of the COVID calls that I hear from people. Uh, I hear from people in my family once in a while. They're like, I really liked that one. That's good. I expect we're going to hear that. Um, just to reiterate something that one of our listeners, Irene Conforti Green, just said. Great conversation here with really wise women. And um, thank you so much for this powerful conversation. You've all thought deeply about these times you're living in. And um, I'm really glad that you could share with us. I feel like we're going to need to bring you back a little bit later in the semester as we get, you know, towards uh, November, December, and see how things have have been going. I certainly hope by then that Drexel is ramping up for on campus in in the winter. That would be my hope. This my students and Madeline. I hope everything goes great for you. Um, and everything, everybody's healthy, and everybody follows the rules and these kinds of more. Um, stronger actions that you're all talking about taking in different ways. I uh, look forward to hearing more about those and seeing those as well. Just to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls and we'll be talking to Madeline Ladd and Afra Hallider and Shivani Patel. And tomorrow on COVID calls, we're going to have um, a few different guests. We're going to have Jennifer Lazo and we're also going to have Caitlin Bain. I just found out from the Beaumont enterprise. We're going to be picking up the thread that we've been talking about a lot about what happens with compound disasters. So tomorrow we'll be talking about hurricanes, fires, all in the midst of a pandemic. So please do join us for that. And to my guests today, um, great speaking with you. Thank you all and, and good luck for uh, a great school year. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow at five o'clock.